0: So, how many of you remember taking your driver's test? Okay. Now, you know, this has changed over time, the different driver's tests that people take. How many of you young people are looking forward to driving cars someday? Oh, come on, be honest. All right. How many of you parents are not so looking forward to that? You know, when, when, A youth is given the keys to the car. Our system that we have now, which again is very different than how it used to be, is there's a process, there's a progressing. We don't just go, hey you're 15, go drive. Um, We don't do that. We've wised up a little bit. But we give the keys to the car car, to the, 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 the youngster and we say, here you go, but you need to do it with a parent. And then You need to do it, but not with your friends distracting you in the car for a few years. And then, eventually, we might let you drive the car. Now, I don't think we'll be letting them drive the brand new Mercedes or something like that. Uh, But we get this, this picture that there's a progression to it. We hand them keys, but then we say, you can't quite use them yet. Well, this is exactly where we find Peter and the disciples today. Last week in our passage we looked at, there was a great confession, which we'll get into here in a second as we review. But the disciples are told, here are the keys to the kingdom, don't use them yet. And so like a teenager who has the keys to mom and dad's car, they're told, you can't use them yet. So let's look at this. So we're going to review a little bit, uh, because I know some of you were at a retreat last week, and uh, I think we need to make sure we see this point here. So we're going to actually go backwards a little bit into chapter 16, starting in verse 16. So Jesus has taken the disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is up in the north. It's a pagan city. It's a city that is focused around the worship of the god Pan. Not Peter, but just Pan, okay? (laughs) Jesus asks them, who did the people say that I am? And he gets all sorts of answers. Then he turns to them and he says, who do you say that I am? Peter responds in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 17, and Jesus answered to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Peter makes a great confession. Peter, who is the the leader and the, the chief representative of the disciples, says, This is what you are. This is who you are. Peter finally gets it, at least in word. Verse 18, Jesus continues. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The the rock is the great confession of Peter, whose name means rock. Notice it says, Jesus will build his church. That takes a lot of pressure off of me takes a lot of pressure off of us. It's not our job to build this church. It's Jesus' job. Notice it says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's also, the, actually the real word there is the word Hades. And this means death. It's a colloquialism for death. He's saying, doesn't matter whether we die or not, because this kingdom is going to be built right here. He says, I will build my church on the rock. The foundation is the confession. And even if they kill you, yes, death will not stop my church. Then in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Again, that's a weird kind of way to end this. Hey, good job, great confession, here are the keys to the kingdom, don't use them. Here are the keys to the brand new Mercedes, you can't drive it. Why was this the case? Why was Peter told and the disciples told they couldn't use this yet? Well, we're going to actually see the answer to that in today's passage. They're not there yet. They're not mature enough yet. But very shortly they will, because here's the problem. Right now, the disciples, if they start trying to use the keys to the kingdom, they're going to get it 100% wrong. They're going to bind the wrong things and loose the wrong things. And we see this in this passage today, because immediately after Peter is told, you are the rock, you got this from God the Father, immediately he's told, you're a stumbling block, you got this from the devil." What a turn of events in a matter of seconds. And it's because Peter doesn't know yet. He doesn't get it yet. So today we're going to look at three parts to this three verses. The first part is the conqueror, the second part is the conflict, and the third is the cure. So let's look at the conqueror. Who's this conqueror? Well, this conqueror is Jesus. What has he conquered? Sin and death. This is not a conquest like other religions. Where they come in with their swords and they say, convert or we'll kill you. It's not what we're talking about here. This isn't any take over a nation and make it Christian. It's not any of that. That's not how Jesus works. Sadly, in our history as a church, there have been times where people have done that. But that's not what we see here. The conquest, the conqueror is conquering that great enemy, sin, which leads to death. And so he's saying, I have conquered. And we see this in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So we've got to point a few things out before we get into this. The first bit is where it says, from that time. This is a phrase that is used in Matthew to say we're moving into something new. The first time we saw this was back in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus had walked out and was tempted in the wilderness And as soon as he got done, it said from that time, he went on into the public and started teaching. Right here, this is a change of perspective. Before, the teaching was all about the public. From this point on in Matthew, all the way through to the end, it's to his disciples. He's teaching only his disciples. So this is the beginning of that long march from Galilee down to Jerusalem to the cross. So this is the change in perspective. It says... He must go to Jerusalem. Probably a better way to word this is, it is necessary that he go to Jerusalem. There's this prophesying here that Jesus is doing. He says, it is necessary for me to go to Jerusalem. It's necessary for me to suffer physically, emotionally, spiritually. It is necessary that I go and die. And it is necessary that I be raised from the dead. That third day raised This should have, at this point, should be getting our attention because not only have we heard Jesus say, I'll give you the sign of Jonah, but then last week he said, Simon Peter Bar-Jonah, which is a a different way of saying Peter's last name, which is actually Bar-John, but Bar-Jonah is another way to say it. He's pointing to this fact that there is a three-day period of death before resurrection. And Jonah was kind of a foretaste of that, trying to remind us that death doesn't win in Jesus' equation. Death will not triumph. He says, I am going to die, but I will beat it. And he says it several times. So these all go together. This is is not a choice on Jesus' part. This is not a whim. It's a part of the plan from the very beginning. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, there's a cost for me to create my church. There's a cost for me to gather you all in as a part of my people, and that cost will be my life. Like, you think about when we we, we do something here at the church and we want to upgrade something, we want to build something. We don't just start building it. We look at the cost and we say, how much is this going to take? And then we count the cost. Jesus is here laying out the cost. He's saying, I am going to build a church. I'm going to build it on the foundation of a confession, But it's going to be costly. It's going to kill the most perfect, most precious being who has ever existed. And it's going to be terrible. So what does it cost Jesus? It costs Jesus his life. Again, this is not plan B. All right, The very beginning in Genesis 3, we see the first prophecy. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, which is a way of saying the first gospel, the first announcement. And it says, this is the plan. God didn't go, oh man, they sinned. Okay, well, plan B, Jesus, that's not the way it worked. Instead, this was the plan from all time. Look at Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, God, has put him, Jesus, to grief. It was God's plan from the beginning. That sin, when it entered, Jesus would be the solution. So the question should be, why does Jesus need to come and do the life that he did? We're coming up on Easter, Resurrection Sunday here in a few weeks. Why couldn't Jesus have just beamed down and died of old age and done? Why does he even need to die? Couldn't he just come down and live a perfect life and we follow his example and we're all all the better for it? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to come and die? Well, there's two reasons that lead to a lot more reasons. But there are the two attributes of God that I want to touch on. The first one is God's justice. Justice says the guilty must be punished. God is just. He punishes the guilty. It's throughout the Bible. The second attribute of God is that God is compassionate, which means he forgives those who wrong him. The problem is, is that if you you magnify one of those, you exclude the other. And yet the Bible says they're both there. God is compassionate. He loves you. He wants to forgive you of your sins, but he's also just, and he does not let evil go unpunished. So how do we do both? And the answer is, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the reason. Jesus has to come. He has to live a perfect life. And he has to die the death we all deserve. See, when Jesus is on the cross, yes, the crucifixion was terrible. Yes, the, 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 the shame of it all. Yes, the things that were being hurled at him, the whipping, and all of that. If you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, you know this is graphic beyond belief. That was nothing compared to all of our sins on him which is the reason he came. So all sin will be punished. God has said so. All sin will be forgiven, but it depends on who is punished for it. We as finite beings can either take the punishment of sin in eternity in hell, or we can put that punishment, or God will put that punishment, on Christ in our place. So that's why Jesus had to come and die the death he did. It's to provide the means by which punishment is laid out so that God can be just and the justifier at the same time. He is too holy to overlook sin, but he also is too loving to not forgive. So how do we have those together? And the answer is what he did in Jesus. Look again at Isaiah 53. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Those are both words for sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That's the shame, the ridicule that was brought us peace. And his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all. Romans 5.8, God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he, Jesus, might bring us to God. You see the picture here is that Jesus' death on the cross is what provides the means by which God can forgive us of our sins and extend the compassion that everyone wants. Yes, the pain of the cross was intense, but spiritually it was way worse. All of the sins were laid on him. Now, Peter steps forward and goes, Hold up, Jesus, you can't be doing this. No, 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 that's not the way this is going to work. There's, 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 there's something wrong here. I want you to live a long life, die a death as an old man, and reign. I want to be right there with you. And that makes sense, right? It would make sense. You know, rulers, we, we see all these rulers and all these, whether they're tyrants or they're good ones, they, they rule while being alive. They don't rule while being dead. It doesn't work that way. And so Peter, this makes sense. However, what he's actually asking for is he's asking, Jesus, how about you not die for my sins? I think I got this. And what he doesn't realize is that if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, then Peter goes to hell then every single person that's ever lived goes to hell, no matter how good they are. He's saying, Peter, you can't drive this car yet. You're not ready. You don't understand. So now we see the conflict, the great conflict. There are two ways to look at things. There's God's way and there's Satan's way. This conflict is wanting the cross's results, the reward of the cross without the cross. Peter wants Jesus to reign without suffering. Or another way to put it, he wants the crown without the cross. And Peter is saying, you don't need to die. We can do this without this. I'm sure it'll work. Look at verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter takes him aside. He doesn't do this in front of the whole group. Pulls him aside. That word to take aside is actually a word to hook and pull away. Which is an interesting way to put that. Peter is feeling a little bit, you know, like like he's the man. Because this is the only time that Jesus is ever rebuked by one of his disciples. That word is a strong word. It's actually the word that Jesus used to stop the storm back in Matthew 8. When he rebukes the wind and the wind falls silent. Peter's upset. He comes on strong here. He says, far be it. Never. God forbid. What he's saying is God in his mercy would never allow you to die. It would never happen. See, Peter can say the right things with his mouth like we saw in verse 16, but his heart is not there yet. Now, why does Peter do this? Well, first, he's the leader of the disciples. We need, to, we need to remember that. There are lists of the disciples in the Bible. There's four of them, three in the Gospels and one in Acts, and they list the disciples in all different order except for one person. Peter, always listed first. So Peter is the leader. I think Peter was trying to help. I think he was saying, no, we don't need to have you die. Let's have you live. He's putting forward something. Maybe it's out of love. Maybe it's out of he wants to be a leader with Jesus, reign with him. We don't know. But in his mind, he's going, you are the greater David. I heard you say that a few weeks ago. If you're the greater David, David dies as an old man in his bed. So of course, Messiah, do you even need to die? You could live forever, right? If you're greater than David, you're for sure going to die in a nicer bed because you're greater. He's missing the point, see? He's not recognizing the fact that greater was not he's going to live a better life than David, but greater as in he could be the sacrifice for all of us. See, Peter had the pomp, glory, power, majesty view of the Messiah. Jesus had the suffering, pain, be murdered, and rise, Messiah. And that was God's view. Peter couldn't quite get it. It didn't fit his plan. It didn't fit what he thinks things should be like. Now, he shouldn't be surprised because the Bible makes it abundantly clear that we think one way and God thinks the exact opposite, right? Look at, there's, there's lots of verses. Here are a few. Proverbs fourteen twelve. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is a way to death. We think we're living, yes, this is the best life now. And the Bible says, no, actually, that's the way to die. Psalm 92, the whole thing is about it. But verse 5, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know them. The fool cannot understand this. Isaiah 55, 8, probably the one you're all most familiar with. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. The New Testament gets in on this. 1 Corinthians 18, I mean, this could be about Peter right here. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Paul goes even further in verse chapter 3, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. You guys getting a picture here that God has a way and our world says, ha, that's the wrong way, and they scoff at it and they put it down and they do TikToks showing how stupid Christians are and YouTube videos and everything else in between saying Christians are stupid, the Bible's stupid, God is an idiot. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't feel threatened by that because that's foolishness being compared to God's wisdom. I mean, and and how deficient are we, right? We as believers, if you're here and you know Jesus as your Savior, you pray the wrong way. Do you remember that? What does it say? It says the Holy Spirit comes along and, like, translates our prayers. It says it prays for us when we don't know what to pray. Why? Because we're over here looking at the world and going, you know, what, maybe I should pray for a brand new big car. Maybe I should pray for a new job. Maybe I should pray fill in the blank the world says this is to chase this god says no this is the right way so we are at conflict and the conflict is with satan and the the rule that he has over this world and to be honest our biggest conflict is right here in the church paul sees us look at acts 20 he says i know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock And from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he goes, are you guys really forgetting all that I taught? All these false teachers are coming in? False teachers and false teaching is the major threat throughout the New Testament. But unfortunately, like an insurgency, it doesn't come in wearing uniforms. There's no military garb, for the devil's false teachers. The devil doesn't walk in and go, hey everyone, it's me, the devil, I'm here to teach you false stuff, prepare to not listen, right? That's not the way it works. Instead, the false teaching comes right into the church, clothed and looking just like everyone else. So how are we to know it's there? How are we to know it's there? Well, we know it's there by knowing God's word first and foremost. Peter here, doesn't know it. He, 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 he can say it, but it's not hit home yet. Because Peter doesn't get things just a little wrong. He gets them incredibly opposite wrong, terrifyingly, catastrophically wrong. He gets it 100% wrong. And Jesus points this out, verse 23. But he, Jesus, turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. We don't really know what the but he turned means there. I don't know if he had his back to Peter or does he turn his back on him. We don't really know. But I, I think that he probably turns and looks Peter right in the face. Kind of like maybe later when it says when Peter denies Jesus three times. On the third one, it says what? Jesus turned and looked at him. You know, Jesus had that look. There were a few places we see this in the Bible where he just makes eye contact and you go, Whoa. I think that's what Peter sees here. Jesus is not saying Peter is being possessed by the devil. We see that later with Judas, but that's not what's happening here. Instead, Peter is so deficient, he's so immature in his understanding of what's going on, that he is actually doing the work of the devil. Jesus is chiding Peter and threw Peter onto Satan and saying, hands off, get off of him. Peter, do you understand that the words you're saying are the words of the devil he says get behind can also mean get get away or get out of my sight and i think just like with everything else with jesus there's two levels going here he's saying get behind me satan to peter so peter knows oh my gosh this is who i'm serving and then the devil has to do what jesus says and so at that point you know what the devil had to do had to get behind jesus Because the devil has free will, but Jesus controls everything that he does. If he just said, you're done, he's done. Spurgeon writes, I do not understand our Lord to have called Peter Satan, but to have looked right through Peter to see Satan standing behind him, making use of this apostle to be his spokesman. The best men may sometimes serve the devil's turn better than bad men would. See, what had happened was... Even though Peter had said the most amazing thing that Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, you have had the Father speaking through you. In seconds later, he's doing the work of the evil one. See, Peter's paradigm is that Jesus is the Christ, therefore, he will not die and he will triumph and I'll be right there with him. Jesus is, is I am the Christ. Therefore, I will take the shame that my people deserve and I will suffer the death that they will deserve and I will be the sacrifice that will make the shame and death go away forever. See, Peter's view of Jesus was actually pretty small, pretty stunted. Peter had the right idea that this is going to all end in glory, but the means by which you get there, he didn't understand. Now, Jesus has seen this temptation before. Remember, I referenced Matthew 4 earlier. When Jesus was in, was in the wilderness, the devil's temptation basically was, there was three of them, but basic temptation was, Jesus, skip the cross, and we can do all the stuff that the cross does. Why don't you just skip the dying, and I'll take care of you. I think this is the greatest temptation that Jesus had to experience. We see it again. If you remember in Luke 4, uh, Luke four thirteen. it says, the devil departed to return at an opportune time. Well, here's the opportune time. Once again, Jesus does have this same temptation. Well, where do we see that? In Matthew chapter 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is literally staring down the cross. He, in his knowledge, his infinite wisdom, knows that the guards with their armor and Judas are working their way to him, that this is the hour, this is when it's gonna happen. And Jesus says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. This is the same thing, the crown without the cross. That's a serious temptation for Jesus. Remembering that the cross was one of the worst forms of death ever invented. But that's not what Jesus' is, is, his anxiety is about. It's about the disconnect from God, the sins of the world on this pure, perfect being. So he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. This word hindrance is actually the word stumbling block, stumbling stone. It's a play on the words we saw just a few minutes ago. Peter, you are the rock, right? And then a few minutes later, you are the stumbling stone. There's a reason why professional wrestlers go with the name the rock versus the stumbling stone Because this stumbling stone is meant to trip, it's meant to hinder, it's a trap. See, Satan's plan is always to get Jesus to avoid the cross. And Peter has become the stumbling block, a trap, a satanic trap to try to trip him up. But see, Peter gets this. Later on, Peter writes 1 Peter, and look at what he says here about the devil. I think this is from firsthand experience. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, not your knowledge, not your confession, but your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This, was the, this is what Peter had experienced. And we need to be careful because, again, Peter, it made perfect logical sense to say, yeah, Jesus, you don't need to die. You need to live a nice long life. Think of all the people you could reach. But no matter how great our intentions and our intuitions and our gut feelings and our logic, if it doesn't match up with scripture, it's not doing the work of our Lord. But before we move on from Peter, I want to point out one thing. Peter's kind of the bumbling idiot, right? We kind of like that about him, don't we? We go, "Ha, huh, I can totally empathize with Peter." He messes up, he screws up, he says something dumb, doesn't think before he spits those words out, and we go, God, God forgive him, God will forgive me. And I totally agree, because that's that's what I think. I love that. However, brace yourself. Because comparing myself to Peter in the Gospels and being encouraged by that is a lot like me looking at a two-year-old And going, you know, when that two-year-old gets hangry, you know, hungry and angry, they get really moody. You know, I do the same thing. I'm so encouraged by that two-year-old. At age 46, I feel, oh, man, that makes me feel so good. I can empathize with a two-year-old. Guys, we do that with Peter. We were never meant to stay where Peter is in the Gospels. We need to get that. It's like a 46-year-old compared to a 2-year-old. Peter was just a baby here. He was just learning how to be a follower of Jesus. We can be encouraged because we all start there. But if we're still empathizing with Peter and we've been a believer for 10 years, time to take the training wheels off. The good news is, is that this is not unheard of in the Christian church. Look at Hebrews 5. Probably a sermon by Paul, but we don't know for sure. But look at what they said. This is written to a church. About this we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. The basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is an unskilled in the work of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment. Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We cannot stay as children in our walks with the Lord. We cannot stay in our knowledge of God, of our relationship with God as a child does. What a disappointment. If you've been a follower of Christ for any amount of time and you look the same as the day you became a believer, let go of the world's way of seeing things grab on to God's way because that's the only hope to grow in maturity. Peter goes on to write two books of the Bible, 1st and 2nd Peter. He goes on to dictate the book of Mark, we think. Not to mention, now look at this. Talk about maturity. This is this is Peter about 45 days after Jesus dies. Acts 2:22. The same Peter who denies Christ, the same Peter that's, get behind me, Satan, listen to these words. See if they sound like Jesus. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There's the must, it's in order, it's it's important to do you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So did Peter get it? Absolutely. Peter got it. Now, let me, let me wow you even more, okay? You're like, okay, so I just got to get this. No, we want to empathize with Peter in the Gospels. We need to empathize with Peter where he ends up. Look at what happens three chapters later. Acts 5. So a little bit of background here. Peter and a couple of the disciples have been preaching all over the place about Jesus. And they get arrested. And they get taken before the Sanhedrin. Now, this is not a new Sanhedrin. This is not a new high priest. This is the same ones who just killed Jesus. Just had Jesus put to death. And Peter is standing before him. I always wonder, you know, because Jesus was beaten there. I always wonder where Peter's standing. Is there little bits of blood still in the cobblestone? You know, is there some hair? Because they said they pulled out his beard and his hair. Is some of his hair still there? Could there be a thorn that broke off the crown of thorns? What is, where is Peter standing? He's standing right where Jesus did. But look at what he says. They brought him before the council, and the high priest questioned him, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, Jesus' name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter says, We must obey God rather than men the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging on a tree God exalted him to the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins and we were witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him preach I mean that's what he's doing he's preaching to these men in verse 33 when they heard this they were enraged and they wanted to kill them even more so Peter has changed his entire countenance. Why? Because he has gotten a hold of what the Lord has been working on his heart. He has submitted to the Lord. The Lord has got a hold of him. He is no longer seeing the way the world sees. He's seeing the way God sees. Later on, when Paul is on his missionary journey, someone says, they've turned the world upside down. Not because they've changed it, but because the up is now down and down is up. A dying Messiah Is the way to go not a conquering Messiah so Peter grows into something amazing this is where we need to go this is what we all need to be no more milk it's time for solid food so let's get into the cure the cure is we set our minds on the things of God look at verse 23 for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of the world so the the cure here is putting that positive Do not set your mind on the things of the world, but set them on the things of God. One author's translation of this was, because you're not gripped by the concerns of God, but you are wasting your time on the concerns of man. This things of God is seeing it the way God does. The reason why we get together each week is because we need to have ourselves reoriented to the truth. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us because we're off chasing all these other things that the world puts out. And so we must constantly have that reorientation. Second Corinthians 10 talks about this. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, before you hear that and you go, I'm gonna be a Twitter warrior, I'm gonna be an online defeater of all these these thoughts, that's, that's maybe secondary, maybe. Pray about it, please. But the primary motive here is here. It's not letting those thoughts take my thoughts captive. It's all these arguments that are brought up. Instead of letting them fester, I take them to God's word, and God's word destroys them, utterly annihilates them. And you know, so there's some arguments that are hard. Some of you have seen these. You've gone online and you've seen these arguments, and they're like, I don't know how to answer that. Guys, that's light work for God. Remember, He defeated death, He defeated sin. And so it's there. His spirit wants to help you. We want to help you. Come see me. Come see one of the elders. we got books galore that have these questions answered. Your Bible has the answers, and these books just point to it. So we need to understand that we have to have our minds on the thing of the world, on things of God, not the things of the world. See, Satan wants to lead up. God wants to lead down. Human thoughts want to soar upward with how great we are. The divine ones get down on their knees and wash the feet. The devil loves human greatness. God is suspect of it. Even people sitting here in the church today can be a mouthpiece of Satan. We can say all the right things about Jesus, but also articulate the things of Satan right there. John Calvin says, let us learn not to be too much attached to our own views, but submissively, submissively embrace what the Lord approves. See, the worst battles that we fight are in here. They're in here. We must constantly be bringing each other back to the Lord. That's why we have community. It's not just something that looks nice on a sign. It's not just something that we say, hey, this is, you know, this is kind of important. It's not to build our numbers, but because we need each other through our Bible studies and our life groups and our fellowship that we have here to help point us back to this is God's way because we so easily forget. We can easily go from being a rock to being a stumbling block. Romans 8 helps us see this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not to submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you guys get that when we help each other see the way to God's way, we are breathing life into each other? It's Not just life. Oh, I'm a people person. I'm an extrovert. I like being around people. No, that's great. Some of us are introverts. That's not great for us. But the key is we are breathing life into each other by our relationships, by our friendships, by our constantly edifying each other and pointing to the Lord. We are breathing life. When we let the way of the world come in here, we're letting death spread, and we don't want that because we can say the right things with our mouths, but our hearts can be dead wrong. So how do we do this? Well, we do this by weighing everything by Scripture. There's a reason why we have Bible studies here. There's a reason why we encourage you. It's the reason why we have a resource table with Bibles and books. There's a reason why we want to know if you need help because the, God's word has the help you need. God's word needs to speak into our lives. We need to know it. We need to love it. We need to believe it. Because we need to remember that if Peter can go from God speaking through him to the devil speaking through him a moment later, we are right there. We need to know God's word, live God's word, and then show God's word. Romans 12, 2, listen to this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. That word transformed is also a word that's used for the word mature. Mature. It's not just the fact that you've lived a long time on this earth. That makes you mature it's where are you with the lord so let's move from the milk let's get to the solid food and then let's share it with each other get into god's word today don't wait if you're in god's word find new ways to live it out find new ways to have it go out into every part of your life maybe that means more prayer maybe that means more thinking about how to encounter your neighbors. Maybe that means thinking about all the little interactions you have every day. We call those chance encounters. Guys, God controls everything. There's nobody you're gonna meet this week that he didn't plan for you to interact with. So all of those chance encounters are God encounters. How can you speak truth into that? Not by changing and arguing their arguments, but how can you get the conversation back to Jesus? I heard... um, A famous Bible preacher, I won't drop his name, but he said, every time I'm interviewed, I get to two things. doesn't matter what they ask me. Oh, you know, what's your church like? How's your family? What do you think of the election? He says, the two things I always talk about, Jesus and God's word is true. I get it back to that always. So when Larry King goes, tell me what you think about our president, he goes, you know, the Bible is true and it's God's word. And Jesus is God's son, and he died for your sins. And Larry's going, oh, come on, that's not what I No, no, Jesus died for you. See, that's the way we need to be. That's the maturity. That's where Peter gets to. Let's get there as well. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, and thank you that we get to spend time in your word. Lord, I can't wait to someday be able to hear all the things that you did through Peter. And the other apostles, Lord, I just praise you that they didn't stay where they were, that they didn't have the training wheels on forever, but that they grew into incredible men that served you. Lord, thank you for the the women that followed Jesus as well. Some of them we know about, many of them we don't, who also started with training wheels and then got it and soared later. Lord, we just want to be like that. Those are the kind of people, Lord, that you use to change the world, to change neighborhoods, to make your name great. And Lord, we want to see your name made great. So Lord, remove all of the stumbling blocks in us. Remove all of the things that get in the way. Remove our desire to want to follow the ways of the world and give us the desire to follow you first and foremost. Lord, we, we love that you're a God that transforms and matures us. Continue to do that work on us today. In Jesus' name. Amen.